Welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We're having a special bonus episode of the Directors Club here because the year 2018 delivered us a very wonderful surprise in terms of a new movie from one of our favorite directors. So we were very lucky to catch it in a theater and were compelled to talk about it and... uh, See how it fits in with his other works. Uh, Hello, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And the film we're talking about is a very, very long delayed work from one Orson Welles, The Other Side of the Wind. Now, joining us on this look on Orson Welles' latest efforts, made several years after his death, is a compatriot of ours from the Chicago Film Discussion Group. He's a co-organizer of the group and, in fact, has been participating in discussions on films for the Chicagoland area since 1971. It's a great pleasure to bring aboard uh, Ken Silber. Uh, Welcome, Ken. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. Yes, it's great to see you outside the context of our meetups and inside the context of the Directors Club podcast. And I believe all of us were lucky enough to be in the same place, the Chicago International Film Festival, which had the premier theatrical appearance in Chicago of Orson Welles' film. And it was also followed up by a discussion by some of the producers who were helpful in putting this movie back together because this is notably one of the biggest unfinished cinematic projects in movie history. Now, we mentioned the film briefly in our previous uh, podcast on Orson Welles, which was a two-parter, and at the end of our Orson Welles Part 2, we discussed this briefly, yet within a year, the film finally arrives and we're going to be able to go in-depth. But the context of it, which we discussed at length in the other podcast, is the tortured relationship between Orson Welles and Hollywood, and how throughout his career, it was a constant battle for funding, for creative control, basically after the magnificent artistic success of Citizen Kane. Each film afterwards was some sort of struggle with the studios fighting with Wells, Wells fighting with the studios, compromised visions of many of the films appearing. Sometimes those visions remained masterpieces, and other times they did not. He would turn to acting in order to fund his projects. And by the time we hit 1970, which is when Wells starts shooting The Other Side of the Wind, which will shoot for the next five or six years or so, he is cobbling together money any which way he can. And in this case, sadly, the the final product did not see the light of day until over 30 years after his death. Yeah, I was a fan of Orson Welles from a long while back, but our double episode podcast on Welles gave me this gigantic amount of appreciation for the struggles that he had to do to put his later movies together and then the miraculous way how over and over again he would be able to put out cinematic gold from the most threadbare piles of straw. In fact, one of my favorite films of Wells is F for Fake, which was his the last effort that he had officially completed. And I think it was a, a triumph that was, in fact, ahead of its time. So one of the things going into this movie was, is there enough there to put together to be able to make an amazing movie? So we were told at the end of the screening that about uh, 30% of the film could be considered Orson Welles' own vision of what he had a chance to edit and put together during his lifetime. There were further complications when the film stock itself ended up in France and inaccessible to uh, Welles and the Welles estate. 
and only recently with creative people who were involved like Peter Bogdanovich and finally Netflix getting involved was the final product that we see today put together. Again, Wells's original footage, but much of the film edited and compiled and structured by any number of creative people only over the last few years. Yeah, I think it's kind of important to note that there is a huge amount of international level drama involved in the achievement of getting this film to the screen. But as much as possible, you should try to avoid that until you see the movie. Because there's legal disputes, family issues, and there's even a, even some extortion <laughs> and, uh, and thievery involved. And if you were to even delve into even a small fraction of all the minutiae it takes to put this film together, it could easily overwhelm what the, what the movie was trying to do and what Orson was trying to do to get the movie made. One thing I would want to bring up is what was the impressions that we had when we saw this film? I had several. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one was it took me back to the good old 70s days of new wave, new Hollywood filmmaking. Mm. And seeing the actual new wave filmmakers in the film was just a treat. While I listen to your podcast, I'm, I'm not sure that I remember it as perfectly as you do, but it was exciting for me to see, to compare the type of cinematography used in Citizen Kane, Magnificent Ambersons, Othello, with the fast-cutting new Hollywood style of cinematography and not knowing whether Wells did that edit himself or other people did. It was just striking to see mm -hmm. the difference. And as I'll get into in a bit, there were some beautiful quotations and some themes that just jumped out to me. So the film is basically two films in one. The main plot of the film deals with John Huston as a director named Jake Hannaford. Somewhat of an amalgamation of Orson Welles himself and, and maybe a little bit of Ernest Hemingway uh, in, in Huston's gruff, dominating manner that he had in, in his old age in the 70s. So he's this acclaimed director who has all these hangers on people who work for him, people who follow him about critics who critique him, people who are just there for the party. And he's going to screen his latest film also called the other side of the wind at this party for all these folks. And so the second part is that titular film, the, the Other Side of the Wind, the product, which is filmed in a completely different way. For one, when we see The Other Side of the Wind, it's in widescreen. When we see all the footage at the party or on the way to the party, it's in full screen. There's scenes that are in black and white in color. But the, the other side of the wind itself is filmed with a completely uh, different style. It, it was sort of a, a take on the films of uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, who was very hip at the time. And he had a, a, a pretty explicit film called Zabriskie Point, which came out around the time this was being shot and featured a lot of nudity. And this film within a film also is most notable for its very sexual nature. And the lead force in this is was played by Wells's own paramour at the time named Oja Kadar. Notably, uh, Antonioni was considered hip by certain film fans at the time, but was also 
already then had acquired a little bit of a reputation as a the sort of an apex of cinematic pretentiousness <laughs> of the idea that through the sheer superiority of the brilliance of his widescreen images, he would be blown away enough to not care about stuff such as who is this guy and what is he doing <laughs> and other trivial concerns of mere mortals. And one of the things that the film, The Other Side of the Wind, is exploring is how, why is the director in this movie making this film to show to people and how successful are we to make of that and his attempts to do so? For me, the film within a film, which is The Other Side of the Wind, is indeed a takeoff on the Antonioni film. But in many ways, it struck me as a nude version of Last Year at Marion Bad and Hiroshima Mon Amour, uh-huh. which also just has people walking around, leaving you to figure out why they're walking around and what they're doing and why they're doing it mm-hmm. now as it from my impression on seeing the film within a film and this may speak to how much about a film enthusiast and and how much i want to explore the world of film i can that i can be but i was quite taken by a great many of these these imagery it's it's obvious it's holding nothing back on putting in just uh for example explicit sexual imagery to scenes where you're just meant to comment on voyeurism there's a scene where uh, where a character is walking through a bathroom and every stall of the bathroom opens to show people in various stages of uh, sexual liaison have are now using this person as a point of observation and they close the door, and a slut goes, not uh, occupied <laughs> in, in a sex session. That's a very humorous um, take on sexual voyeurism, I thought. And I think it shows kind of the ahead-of-his-time vision that, that Orson Welles had, because this scene is set to music, and whether it's Welles or his successors that made this happen, it comes off almost like a proto-MTV music video. Yes. There's even a cutaway shot that makes no sense to some people in gas masks turning to the camera in a way that might have appeared in Pink Floyd The Wall. (laughs) I mean, mean, this entire sequence in, in the bar that ends up with this extraordinary bathroom scene is kind of like a look what I can do kind of sequence and it's the critique of that is incorporated in the film itself because part of the dialogue from from Hannaford and his acolytes are well is he trying to be like the kids today of course by the kids we mean the up and comers in 1970 but what's this what does this old timer think he's doing trying to uh work in the new style and so the characters are making fun of the director about that the director himself is kind of struggling with that issue it's is he relevant in this new film culture while at the same time this film within a film comically demonstrates those very traits yes yes in two different ways i think this film does uh something i guess the best way i can describe it is anti-nostalgia one way it does this is that in a film that's presented today about something set in the 70s, you can try to evoke it, and you may be very successful and get and get the details, or maybe even the sensibility right. But there's always particularly something missing, or not something missing, but you always have this sense that there was some artifice to it, some effect that I'm recreating something and you're meant to know that I'm building from a lost time. But it's another to how this film erupts like just just this time capsule because I find it has this vibrancy of the the things that this movie is showing were the very brand new things at the time and they feel like brand new expressions when I see The Other Side of the Wind even though 
uh, filmmaking has moved in so many different directions in the intervening decades. Right, so I have kind of these these two competing reactions, or maybe they're not so competing. There is a this sense of disconnect because he is working in such a very specific to its time style. The way a lot of the like Ken, you mentioned uh, the new wave, and there's a lot of. Godard touches and a lot of French New Wave stuff that you could see in the uh, in the larger film structure, but at the same time there is an urgency and excitement to the film that I thought was very palpable, and so I was able to put myself in this place. But I think it's important to kind of have this expectation that. We're in this forward-looking film, but it's forward-looking from a different time. Yes. A very strange place to be. And another reason where I feel it has the anti-nostalgia kind of view is that there's a satirical point the movie makes that is only five to ten times more relevant to the world we are today. Because the running gag of the of the story in this movie, as the director is moving on this party and he has a whole collection of lackeys, assistants, producers, well-wishers, colleagues, and assorted other random folks, is every one of them has a recording device. <laughs> <laughs> and the movie gives you a lot of mirth from where conversations you expect to be held in secret or or have it's so ludicrous to expect that they will remain private and and time after time you get these angles that are uh, that are coming in from just some guy hanging by the pool filming (laughs) now obviously technology with the advancement of recording devices that you could use at the time was was something that he was commenting on but it only has become so much more vastly relevant today whereas like almost every public activity now we have an expectation that it will be recorded or that it's being recorded yes and so this is something that the film absolutely pegs that kind of level of oppressive confusion of who's watching who watching who (laughs) that we live in. In fact, Hannaford, at one point, somebody asks him to to stop recording, and he specifically says, it doesn't matter. Everyone has a camera and is recording this. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's well aware of the changing time and what the film style and the film ethos of the new wave and the the technology has now made possible and that there is no privacy. And there's so many great, there's so many great scenes where somebody is filming somebody and then you see a third person filming those, those guys. (laughs) And one where a, a visitor, one where a visitor is being shown storyboards of the movie within a movie and they're suspended in a way that makes it look like they're floating in space. And it's a there's a chaplain-esque moment where uh, where this visitor sees that a guy is filming them, and he just leans over, and the camera guy leans down. He stands <laughs> up, and the camera guy gets up. Like shades of the mirror scene from uh, the Marx Brothers and Duck Soup, I miss you yes. say. <laughs> and the group of these people include quite a few notables. Uh particularly uh, Peter Bogdanovich, who started his career uh, interviewing many of the old masters as a critic and eventually went on to his own great success with uh, films like The Last Picture Show, is basically kind of playing a version of himself, basically the head hanger-on, the guy who was Hannaford's protege 
who became a great success in his own right, to which the other filmmakers and critics give him no end of grief because he's still in Hannaford's shadow. That that brings a lot of Wells' autobiography into this because we watch scenes like that and we realize that they very much mirror the Bogdanovich-Wells relationship in real life. Yeah, this is a case where the more you know about the movie, the more you almost feel that you're in the Hall of Mirrors at the end of Lady from Shanghai <laughs> because the personas of the different care of the actors and the roles that they're portraying reflect and turn in at, in an endless manner on itself. You took that right from my notes. Ah. <laughs> Just going to say that. Yes, this is a film that really works best for people who know what was happening at that time and know Wells's story, know Bogdanovich's story, can identify Dennis Hopper and Claude Chabral, who were actually in the film as filming things. Um, there are also the peanut gallery to help comment on the director's efforts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a very inside film film for instance uh, susan strasberg plays a female critic who really gets uh, on hannaford's bad side and is constantly poking the bear so to speak if you're a cinephile fan of the period uh, you will recognize some parallels between her and and pauline kale who was the most acclaimed film critic of the period, but who also famously wrote articles, and I think even a book, that put the, the authorship of Citizen Kane into question, which was sure to get on Wells's bad side. So some of this movie we see is a little bit of Wells' revenge on Pauline Kael. There is a little bit on that, yes. She is one of the bigger critical voices in this movie, who is expresses sort of a point of view and as sort of presents a mercenary nature of looking for a way to bring this director down. I think there's a really interesting comparison to be made in this film between her actions and those of an actress who, upon whose house this premiere is being held, who's cl who clearly has had a former relationship with this director and, ha and has a, measure of respect and reserve for this person that too many of the people trying to get footage on him notably lack. I believe if the if you look at Marlene Dietrich's performance at the end of Touch of Evil, for example, that's so and her treatment towards the detective Hank Quinlan played by Wells, it's sort of a similar kind of relationship mm -hmm. or or sense of affection and dedication to the person that's shown by the party host in this one. She's also the best cook in the, the film. <laughs> Wells had said that, uh, unfortunately, like in his energies, 90 or 95% of his energies, especially later in his life, were dedicated towards literally hustling to make money for these movies. And 5% were involved in the actual creation or conception of these films. And... The Other Side of the Wind brings this off in just the sheer amount of people who are in the wake of this great director. There's producers, financiers, wranglers, uh, prop people, and lackeys, 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 lackeys. It's just if... Well, if there was, if this was done as expressly as a comic, as a comic bit, you would just say too many lackeys <laughs> in this film. Well, Another parallel is that Hannaford is broke, right? Right. So, and he has to, and he has to go, and and part of the reason that he's doing this kind of film is an attempt to get funding, which is one of the movie's points of ambiguity because when you see these results. I personally think the visual imagery of it and, so, and some of the things that it's exploring are cool, but what they are absolutely not is something that a major movie studio is going to give funding <laughs> to help him complete. So to what extent is this an attempt for him to remain a relevant figure and to what extent is it a self-destructive act? 
of saying that I'm just going to do what I can. Now, which is something that, well, that Wells has been a focus on Wells's issues throughout his career. Right. And to me, that gets me to the to what I I, I read a, a number of critics about on this film, all of whom at the end of their reviews said, and here's what this film is about. Mm. But they all differed in their <laughs> conclusions about what it was about. So there's there is there is a, a good deal of ambiguity there. But what what I took away from it was at two levels. At a serious level, and this this begins to take off on your your notion of his uh, self-destructiveness, you see during the drive to the party, one of the people just jokingly, as they would, as cinema critics, one of the people says, is the camera a reflection of reality or is reality a reflection of the camera or is the camera merely a phallus? Which it, it turns out is a takeoff on Godard's quote, art is not a reflection of reality, it is the reality of reflection. Mm -hmm. Which is no clearer to me than <laughs> most of Godard, but that's okay. Yeah. And, and this, this, for me, kind of sets up the, what I found worked for me in, in putting this together as a filmic piece, which is, what is cinema? This is the thing that Wells has spent his life doing and having troubles doing and being just self-defeating in many ways about. So is film a curse on this film is, according to Glenn Kenny, who, who resonated with me, um, it's a curse on cinema and a blessing of cinema at the same time. Hmm. So you're you're saying that, or rather, Glenn Kenny was saying that the film The Other Side of the Wind is a, sort of an indictment on the idea of cinema? Well, more, more he's saying that it's more than just a satire of old Hollywood, new Hollywood. Mm. But it's really reflecting on the the blessing that Wells' cinematic abilities were, and at the same time, the curse it was, given his personality, it made him suffer. Yes. 90% fundraising versus creating, and never thinking it's good enough, abusing himself. So his filmmaking ability is... A curse as well as a blessing. No, definitely. He, I, I'm just amazed by the particular nature of like Wells's genius and and how that ties in with his troubles towards getting funding and getting support. He was trying to go and find a certain magic in the kind of movies that he was making, and saw the way of how you cinema was able to or film was able to present something in people in a brand new way, in a method that people would just never expect. And it shows the real dark edge to that as to get to that point, you have to push beyond things that people expect or want. And in fact, to a certain extent, have to actually anger and irritate people to get to a point where you can see something remarkable or magical on the screen. And he's always had that sense that, and also he finds that uh, he has famously said that a movie set is the biggest child's play set. But I think maybe more accurately, it's the best magic play set that you can. And because he was, because his history was as a, he started off doing magic tricks, even as a, as a young, as a young child. And so I feel he always has this sense of how are we able to go and by showing this stuff at 24 frames a second, are able to fool people, in effect, to go get these grand 
visions and and wonderful ideas on 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 humanity and uh, and expressions and and everything in between. Yeah, there's so much that's very particularly Wells and Wells's story in in the finished product, but I think it also is a film that functions generally as this satire on Hollywood in the same way that Robert Altman's The Player does. Now, The Player is a more polished film, but it's just as bitter and acidic because Altman had come off from 10 years of exile and not being able to make the kind of films he wanted to make. And when, and then he turns the player uh, into this indictment of Hollywood. And I think Orson Welles had in mind much earlier this uh, an even more brutal indictment because his career path ended up in a far more chaotic place. Yeah, that's a, that's really great comment on on Altman, especially in my case because when in that initial rush to get to the party from the studio screening, where everyone gets in a different car and everyone has their own particular viewpoint of the movie, and which includes a school bus full of dummies mm-hmm. of the main character, who by the way is no quiz kid himself, <laughs> it harkens back to me to the mad rush from the airport at the beginning of Robert Altman's Nashville. And I also has echoes of Godard's Weekend. You think mm-hmm. you can combine these three films to make one hell of an unappetizing road trip. Right, and this was filmed before Nashville, but I think Weekend must have been on Wells' mind when he was putting this, this trail to the party together. Yes, and one of the quotes I loved, because Weekend, New Wave, Filmmaking... One of the quotes that struck me in the film is they're, they're showing the final segment of the film within a film mm-hmm. at the drive-in. And there are two people standing in the projection booth. And somebody's looking at it. He says, wait, that's not the right reel. This reel should be in there. And he says, what difference does it make? which reel you put in. <laughs> and it, it just struck me as both, on the one hand, a critique of new wave cinema, and on the other hand, Wells' critique of himself. Because for him, who is the film perfectionist, no reel would ever perfectly follow the next reel. He could just never allow himself to be perfect. And so I, I thought it played beautifully saying two different, mm-hmm. completely different things. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so, uh, there's so many angles on the film where you can look at, at this aspect or that aspect and it just has like levels within levels within levels. For example, I think one big irony for me is how Peter Bogdanovich pulls out and what I think is a great performance in this film. When I look at this, I am actually illuminated by a lot of perspective and I get a lot more of an idea of what it must feel like to be enthralled to such a director that you treasure and you want to support, but then you find that your career has surpassed his in the sense of success. And yet also you're very, very aware that you are considered this supporter to an extent other people may consider you a flunky or a, or a hanger on. And Bogdanovich's character uh, has this knowledge of how he's perceived and he plays, he plays off it with a great devil may care one. But then in moments which are as close as the film can get to a private moment, he does show real feelings of support to it. When Netflix released the film, uh, it also released an accompanying documentary called They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, which is something Wells said. This film 
should be watched before the documentary. But after you see it, the, the documentary shines a light on a lot of interesting things, particularly about the Bogdanovich relationship and how that role wasn't even supposed to be Bogdanovich. It was supposed to be Rich Little. And yeah. Rich Little has has a cameo. For, for those of our younger listeners, Rich Little Little was the comic impressionist of his day back in in the 70s and basically the film making went so long that he had to leave the project and bogdanovich took over that role which was based on bogdanovich but he also throughout the movie does all these imitations of celebrities from cagney to jimmy stewart uh to all these other folks and you can only imagine that this might have been written with the idea that rich little would bring his impressionist qualities to them and it's it it's it raises an interesting question because the film opens with bogdanovich narrating and saying, I was not comfortable telling this story until a few years ago. And I wonder if that was actually added because it was per actually true, rather than whether that was there when Rich Little did the role. It was added very recently in the finalization of the film because the original thought was that opening uh, prologue would be read by Wells himself. Oh, yeah. And so that ties into a second irony that I found on Bogdanovich's performance in that one of the people who are critically responsible for helping move this project forward to get it as close as it can be to a completion was one Peter Bogdanovich. So you, if you have that in mind of like, hmm, the most nuanced and complexly represented character is the guy <laughs> who helped. <laughs> so you can easily descend the rabbit hole on that. As is, this, it's not even a rabbit hole. It's a Rashomon hole. Because to this day, there's different disputes over Wells' estate, over, uh, over on Bogdanovich's side of things, over on this producer or this producer's side of things as to who lost the funding, who gained this funding, why when the movie was going to get released. And everyone has their own story, and it's nowhere near definitive. And that's why uh, is another good reason to see the movie apart from any further documentaries or the books that have been written on the subject because... Rashomon like they'll provide their own perspectives and you should at least have an opportunity to provide your own <laughs> for sure I want to shift though to another aspect that ties into Wells's favorite themes throughout his career we focus on the actor in the film within the film a character named John Dale who's uh, played by Robert Random he's this kind of pretty boy discovery of Hannaford's. We find out at the beginning that he is nowhere to be found and that there's been some kind of conflict. And we're watching all these sexual interactions between Dale and Kodar. And at some point, we hear Hannaford's voice intrude into the film within the film, basically giving direction and humiliating him. And then Dale walks off the set, which Hannaford takes as this great betrayal. Now, if you've seen... And continues filming. And can... Yes, exactly, Ken. Don't now, cut. Don't cut. Right. Now, if you see a lot of Orson Welles films... Everything from Citizen Kane to Touch of Evil to Chimes at Midnight. What's something that just keeps reappearing over and over again? The betrayal of a friend. And here it is once again in The Other Side of the Wind. But who betrays whom in that? <laughs> yes, and we see both sides of it. We see the cause of Dale's indignation. And then we see the anger that, that's welling up in Hannaford, where, where he makes all these mannequins of Dale 
and places them around the estate during the filming and at one point just starts shooting at them. That leads to a couple readings, which is, was there a homosexual relationship between the two? Because it's been noted how even though Hannaford has kind of a young girl who he's he's hitting on throughout the film, that his real interest, his real passion, his real anger comes forward whenever this actor is brought into the picture. There's another scene where he humiliates one of Dale's teachers, who also is there, by asking him to undress in front of everybody. So there's a whole nother world of interpretations that we can read into here. And there is an ambiguity given all of the stories about how Hannaford found Dale. The supposed story is that he found him drowning and pulled him out of the sea in a boat. But there are as many different versions of that story as there are cameras in this film. (laughs) Everyone has a slightly different (laughs) version of it, many of which include the notion that there's more to this than he just saved him. Well, one thing I want to dig up and uh, maybe you guys will be up to join me for is how the feelings that Hammerford has towards Dale uh, harken back to something that Alfred Hitchcock had notably said about actors that he refers to them as cattle. Mm-hmm. But, but I was thinking that even Hitchcock could not have such a twisted viewpoint of his of the actors in his movie, even uh, during the Marnie Birds phase, as what the Hannaford character does has towards his subject. It, cr- it clearly crosses the line into being abusive and manipulative and controlling and a way of wanting to treat him like so many of the dummies that he's man- that he's manufactured. Let me and- let me suggest a slightly different interpretation. Uh-huh. In both of the sex scenes, Oja Kadar in the scene in the car, she gets on top and she is the one who initiates the sex and is on top. In the scene that you were talking about, Brad, where Hannaford interferes, they are chasing each other around. They are on an old box spring. In the middle of an Old West set. Yes, and she is, again, on top of him. She is dominant in both of those sex scenes Mm -hmm. and is perfectly, doesn't need any direction to continue on. She can handle the situation. Had I been in that situation, I personally would have stayed right there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, like like I was saying, there's some incredibly... Twisted sexual politics going on in the in these scenes, and what and it's also notable that Oja Kadar's uh, the actress appears later in later in the other side of the wind as she's watching herself in the movie within a movie, but then she also helps participate in some of the uh, gun related antics, and that's also interesting how she is treated versus how the Dale character is treated. And apparently, Kadar in real life was very much a creative influence on Wells in particularly the the sex scenes and the film within a film, which kind of fit into her art world Mm -hmm. view of things. But you talk about the kind of uh, sexual humiliation that that was going on, and it it should be noted that what Hannaford really did to uh, set Dale off was questions his manhood and basically is saying the equivalent during this sex scene is you can't even get it up. Yeah, in fact, I even think they're in one of the movies, many, many clever lines that said, uh, do it as like pure Hitchcock, pardon the phrase, <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in that very bedspring scene. And I want to follow also the thread on Hitchcock to go and say the detail about how the point where he was rescued at sea being a potential just bit of fakery, I really resonates with me in the same way of the central double tragedy of Vertigo, kind of known to be Hitchcock's most personal expression in movies, 
And the a reason I call it a double tragedy is not that he remakes a person to be in the image of a lost love, but that, in fact, said love was not actually real and it was a total pretense in the first place. So you're actually getting this same sense of, of mirrors within mirrors within mirrors of a of a feeling refracting and building in on it building in on itself with that where where can you find the reality or the truth the impulse behind directing him right and the, and John Dale as the fictional character there are echoes with the Bogdanovich relationship mm. because what does Bogdanovich do that is from Hannaford's point of view a sin and a betrayal and another possible lost friendship, which is he yes. became too successful. Mm-hmm. These acolytes are wonderful for Hannaford until they become too successful and are able to challenge him. And the double betrayal mm-hmm. where Bogdanovich's character is the last resort for getting the money to complete Hannaford's film and he doesn't want to ask and he doesn't want to ask and finally he's he's reduced to asking Bogdanovich and Bogdanovich says no the ultimate betrayal by Mm -hmm. a friend right because he it's not just I can't afford to lend you the money it's I won't let you be creative in the way you know how. So it's it's actually as destructive of Wells's soul as a a statement could possibly be. Exactly right. This You've the- got the money to let me create and you won't give it to me after everything I've done for you. Oh, well, maybe God. maybe even worse is that Hammerford knows what Bogdanovich's character holds the regard that he holds Hammerford. It is so much more exquisitely painful to have this withholding coming from a guy who still clearly knows what you're and values what you're capable of, as opposed to an anonymous studio mogul would. And that makes the last line of the film so much more powerful. We hear Hannaford in voiceover at a a drive-in that had screened the final bits of of The Other Side of the Wind after a power outage drove everyone from the house. Speaking on the power outage is that it gets a little – is that one of the things the movie does in terms of a progression – is this exterminating angel kind of sense of things just keep going wrong in presenting uh, this movie. And the movie, spoiler alert, the movie within the movie never really gets fully viewed by anyone. (laughs) As power fails and then the house at different moments leads to more and more absurd things happening and then uh, this house... Almost kind of like how Darren Aronofsky's mother just keeps accumulating more and more people. And even the collection of weirdos can scarcely encompass the, when a selection of little people come in carrying a gigantic uh, container of of liquor to move to the roof where they're going to set off some fireworks. (laughs) Which, by the way, causes one of my favorite reaction shots in 2018 as... Bogdanovich's character just sees these dwarves carrying this thing up the stairs and just does a little bit of a shrug of, that's Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) And the movie gets cinematographically more weird, too, as where the lights turn off, how people are left either in shadow or like to do a candlelight rendition of Glowworm (laughs) in a sing-along, to one of the most... wonderfully evocative shots as the fireworks come in they're all different colors and the bright colors illuminate the darkness inside this house that is that is missing power so to the extent that it does develop to make things stranger and stranger and stranger it's because of this pursuit to make this movie that will eventually never be seen right down to the fact that like when they get to the drive-in i love how it's shown with bits of fog coming in like it's actually almost more of a haunted house in this <laughs> in the uh drive-in shown in this movie than the haunted house in the beginning of peter bogdanovich's first film targets in those boris karloff scenes 
Yeah, that last drive-in scene is so atmospheric and such a perfect way to end it because we're now finally just seeing, we're seeing a little bit more of the film, but eventually we're seeing a blank screen. And the final lines said by Hannaford in voiceover just put, it's the, it's the twist of the knife. He's talking about movies and then he's like, shoot them dead in one way he's saying like just shoot the movie but in another way he's so angry and resentful of the betrayals in his life he's saying shoot them dead shoot them dead yeah that's a uh in the movie has a lot of really really fine lines like one of my favorite ones is an ex was a dig at the critical character who was meant to be the takeoff of Pauline Kael, where um, Hannaford says, uh, someone was trying to see, what is her, um, does she really know what this movie's about? And his reply is, hey, even if she doesn't know, she'll tell us. (laughs) (laughs) Let me me ask you a question about the um, scene that's close to the end of the movie. Because the the film begins with a still shot of a overturned automobile and a description that Hannaford died in that car. Before that, we see Hannaford in the car. He sees John Dale in the driveway in his house. He's in the Porsche. He invites John Dale to join him in the Porsche for an adventure. John Dale says no, and he, Hannaford drives off. And then, now, from the beginning, we know that he dies. Are we to assume, based on what you said, Brad, that the just shoot him, that he he was careless driving, or that it was an actual suicide based on his inability to cope anymore with the situation. You know, earlier in the film, one of the characters asked that very question and and, and comes to the conclusion like, oh, that's too hokey an ending Mm -hmm. for Hannaford is to have it be a suicide. I think it's something the film leaves very open to interpretation. My own interpretation is it was a suicide. Mm. And my interpretation is that while it, you could literally look at it as an as sort of a final act of betrayal, because to the ex- once again he offers a way that Dale can ret- return into quote unquote the picture, i.e. Hammerford's life, and again the the whole like psychologically messed up way about what does it mean for a director to direct someone and put that in his life. What does he need Dale in his life to do, right? But I take it as it's more a measure of shoot him dead is a sort of optimistic kind of thing in a in a weird way because I feel what Hammerford and thus Wells is saying is leave everything that you have out there and see why the world will go and react to it. In 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 other words, don't pay a mind to to whether something would be appropriate. And then if it turns out that the result will be a crash, well, that's just kind of the thing that's just going to happen with what with what with what results. Um, uh, shoot him dead is just in its it sort of has this embrace of the go for of the ultimate example of the go for it spirit. Hmm. While also having that psychological idea of I've got something to prove and part of the thing about something to prove, it's sort of a maybe an older man's version of what the characters in Fight Club are having just to prove. The idea of just, for example, directing dominance over others, control over, or control over others, a mastery of a, of, a, of a place, whether it's a party living room or a film studio set. And that sense that you're going to go and dictate and show everyone, show everyone what you've got and all that you've got. That is what brings out that scene that you were describing, Ken, and what that line, shoot him dead, means to me. 
So uh, maybe this is part of me being such a fan of the guy, but I can't help but feel that there's a lot of the quintessentially Wellsian sentiment is is out there in the those last lines and those last moments of the film. Which, oh, by the way, and I need to note that when the the final image shows the screen and then it has an expressway behind it to show all the moving cars. When might one of those moving cars have been Hannaford? I I believe in some in a scene that wasn't filmed, he was originally supposed to crash the car into the film. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I definitely are in on that devil may care spirit. Uh, otherwise, I think in terms of Wells, in terms of the Wells impression, I think in the sense that Brad's point on the betrayal of a friend and in the idea of a guy trying to maintain control of so many moving parts, being successful at the majority of them, but ultimately at heart not realizing the the central thing that motivates them. In other words, one of the main themes of Citizen Kane and in so many of his other work, I think this is is a good touchstone on those. And I think its closest antecedent would be uh, his uh, Orson Welles' film, Mr. Arkadin which also is a kind of a fractured take on the, the that same kind of saga and is actually, I believe, less successfully pieced together than the events in this movie. Oh, yes. I think the final result here is much better than uh, Arkadin. And it's two films, whether you're familiar with the Wells legend or not, it's going to be hard for us to, to separate ourselves from that knowledge. But at the same time, I feel like the knowledge isn't required. You might have a different experience watching the film, but I think it's absolutely worthwhile as, as just an example of exciting filmmaking and one more excuse to see even more works of this master. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And for me, who is, is not, as well-versed in the Wells filmography as you guys are, I got to say that I have learned a great deal about the film from just this discussion today, and I appreciate that. And we appreciate you being here. Great. Yeah, thanks Thanks so much for joining us, Ken. And I want to just extend a little bit of side thanks to two other people who were critical in getting this film the light of day this film had a whole number of editors more than a, uh, i believe more than a baker's dozen <laughs> uh, through the course of its production but a special credit needs to be given to bob moravsky who was the editor of the of the hurt locker who was had the most involvement in taking what was i believe a hundred hours of footage and making it into a very consistent work with a with a through line that uh, we got to see today, and another credit to these to the music and sound design, which is was also really exemplary at making things consistent. There's a very notable sound of windshield wiper blades. I will not soon forget when you see the scene that they're in, and and especially with. The score, a jazz score done by Michelle Legrand, who had actually previously done the score for F for Fake, and also gives the movie a bouncy spirit and energy to match the visual imagery. So we're glad that you guys were able to take a listen to our three impressions on The Other Side of the Wind, a, a film that we would all recommend that you can take a look at, whether on Netflix or if it does get a theatrical presentation to get your own impressions. And we find the more you dive in on Wells's work and Wells's history and the history of this film, you will get even more levels to what this film is all about. Um, the Directors Club can be found in multiple places on the net from Directors Club Podcast at iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook. We're on Twitter at DC Podcast. And you can find our previous episodes, including our two-part look at all the films of Orson Welles up to this point over at our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and hope to catch you on the other side of another Directors Club episode.
A lot of directors and actors like to run their movies, you know, their idea of a happy night at home is to turn on the projector and see one of their pictures again, you know. And I can't think of anything more horrifying, you know, because you can't change it. Yeah. What can you do about it? Yeah. There it is, yeah. forever. And if you're, you know, if you're a writer and you've written a bad chapter and they're going to bring out another edition, if you're lucky enough of your works, you get to fix up that chapter. Nothing you can do about a movie. There it is, locked in forever. Yes. You know? Yes. But of course, you, 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 you will talk generally about, about movies, not your own, yes. about the industry. Yes, I'm not as interesting about it as I'd like to be, though, because I don't see enough movies. No, no. no. But I, was, I was just wondering about the, the changes that you've seen in the, in the industry since you first started making movies in, in Hollywood. The Venus of the Radio. Do you think it's still an industry, Michael? A really oh. an industry? It's not an industry like it used to be, that's no. for sure. And I wonder if it really was. I think it was a kind of, I think it always was show business, and that when there were big studios, which still existed when I went to Hollywood, and were, but were in their very last days, as golden age, big studios, I think they were pretending to be factories, and it was still show business. It's true they were grinding them out and all that, but it's show business. The true industrial process cannot be as, uh, as helter-skelter and idiotic as every form of show business is. Otherwise, you know, every car we'd get in would break down after the second block. I can't believe the rest of the people are as stupid as we are. <laughs>